You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and, as was his custom, he taught them. Hmm. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Hmm. What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Amen. That's a hard teaching, Chris. It is a hard teaching. So does that mean that if a man or woman has been divorced and they get married sometime later, they're committing adultery? It's a great question, Don. We'll get into that. That's a great Please question do. indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Guys, um, we say at Mosaic, the best way to engage a message is with the Bible, something to write with and something to write on. I encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. That's the passage that you just heard. And um, I, I just want to pray before we really get into this message. Um, Lord, we ask you for the grace of fear and trembling. Um, Lord, that by your grace we will work out our salvation by fear and trembling. Um, and really have a reverence for your word, but a truthfulness before you. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, this passage scares me. I hope it scares you too. Um, it can be so tempting to skip over the hard parts of Scripture or to kind of interpret them in ways that make us feel okay about ourselves. Um, but that misses the gospel. The gospel says that we can feel what God calls us to feel because the gospel doesn't say we become holy so that God loves us. No, the gospel says God loves us and his love makes us holy. Amen? So everything in the gospel happens by grace through faith, not through, not through cleaning ourselves up before we get in front of God. So, guys, when you read a scripture that rubs you the wrong way, 
you really want to lean into it. You want to lean into it because it rubbing you the wrong way is really God's kind of holy sandpaper forming you into his image. It's his love forming you into his likeness. Uh, and I want to say this. If you're a single person like me, it's easy to read this text and be like, well, you know, that really doesn't apply to me because I'm not married, that sort of thing. But this passage is really about how hard hearts damage relationships. So the truth is it, it really is for all of us. And now with that groundwork laid, let's, let's jump into the passage. I want to make the case today that to have a soft heart in any relationship, we are called to love like God loves. And God loves uh, covenantally, not contractually. God's love is covenantal, not contractual. So let's start, start by asking the question, what is the difference between a covenant and a contract? Okay, Contracts primarily consider one's own interest. Covenants primarily consider the interest of the relationship. So think about it for a minute. Uh, you have a contractual agreement with someone to paint your house. And by the way, some very kind people came to my house this week and painted my house that I didn't have a contract with. They just covenantally loved me and came and painted my house, and it looks awesome. But that being said, in most certain situations, you're not as lucky as me. You actually have to contract with someone to paint your house, right? And you may have a cordial relationship with a person. You may bring them some sweet tea when they get thirsty, whatever. But odds are, before they start the project, you already have an agreement with them, right? And when they finish the project, you are going to pay them whatever you initially agreed to pay them. Amen? You might like him or her on a personal level, uh, it, but the reality is the next time you need something painted in your house, if there's somebody else who can do just as good a job for a cheaper price, guess who you'll go with? The other person, right? Okay, so um, it's a contract. You're primarily concerned about your own interest. Now, you're not exclusively concerned with your own interest, okay? Because you're willing to pay the person a fair price. You're going to take care of the painter, but you're primarily concerned about getting the job done at a price that you can afford. That's how contracts work. On the other hand, covenants are primarily interested in relationships. That's why covenants create familial bonds. In the Old Testament, uh, and just kind of in the olden days, kings of multiple countries would form covenant treaties with one another, and they would call each other brothers or father and son kind of the last remaining typical covenant in America, er, in our culture, is marriage. And that's why when the pastor finishes the vows, he introduces Mr. and Mrs. Jones, right? It, it makes family where there was none. So covenants are primarily concerned about relationships. Now, I want to give a, a real-world example of how covenant and contractual relationships contrast in nature. And let me say this, marriages come in all shapes, forms, and sizes. This is just a fairly common, typical example, but it is by no means everybody's story. It's by no means every, uh, every marriage that ends in divorce, it doesn't exactly work like this. So this is kind of a, a contrast of, of covenant and contract. So... When you have a kid, you essentially enter into a covenantal relationship with that kid, right? You become the father or mother. Uh, he or she becomes your son or daughter. 
and you make enormous sacrifices for that child. First you're changing diapers, then you're getting up in the middle of the night. A good night's sleep is a thing of the past, which is why I strongly believe in the uncle life, not the parent life. Way to go, right there. And then you're buying clothes and you're buying food. Having kids is just not a great financial decision. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, then you are paying for them to be in soccer or cheerleading and you're going to all her meets and then you're going to all the school events. And every Christmas, every Christmas, Santa Claus comes and he brings your kid lots of toys. But on his way to your house, he goes by your bank and gets a bunch of money out of your bank account. I don't know why we give him that much credit. But anyway, continuing on. So for 18 years, you are giving inexhaustible love for that child. And all the while, the child may or may not be reciprocating that love at all. You may not, yeah, there, there's an amen there. You may not feel loving, but you keep choosing to love because you value the child and you value the relationship with the child. And so when the child graduates high school, she may be a really godly caring person or she may be a total brat. But when she leaves, she's taking your heart with her, right? That's how covenantal love works, right? But then there's your spouse. And again, this isn't all marriages, this is just, kind of a common example. Uh, people enter marriages with more of a contractual mindset than they often realize. So unlike your child, it's a lot easier with your spouse to keep an internal tab about whether they're meeting your needs or not, right? And so, so and there, there's, a few, there's a few too many amens in the room this morning. That's right. So, she doesn't give you the love you're needing, so you begin to withdraw and not give her the love she needs. She says something spiteful, you say something spiteful in return. Amen. And if you're not careful, this can go on and on and on, and then over years, a really big, emotionally cold chasm forms between you and her, right? And then the saddest thing of all is while you're growing in love for your child, you're growing distant to your spouse, and then the child graduates high school and goes off to college, and now the marriage is in evident dire straits, right? Why? Because you had covenantal love for the child, but you had contractual love for your spouse. And guys, contractual love hardens the heart. So notice that the Pharisees come with a contractual question regarding a covenantal matter. Mark says, Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful? If you start out with the question of, Is it lawful? That's almost a guarantee you're talking about a contract, not a covenant, right? And notice that Jesus doesn't take the bait. He says, What did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responds, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law. Guys, we all instinctively know that the worst laws in our country are laws to protect against hard hearts. Let me give you an example. 
McDonald's should not have to put a caution hot sign on their coffee cups. Amen? If you get a cup of coffee from McDonald's, you should know it's hot, and you could get burned if you spill it on yourself, right? Why do they put caution hot signs on coffee cups? Because they've been sued too many times. What are they doing? They're having to protect themselves against hard hearts of people that would take advantage of the system. Does that make sense? So notice that when Jesus says your hearts were hard, in essence, he's saying, Moses gave you this law because you're messed up. Because you're jacked up. You need to repent, okay? So uh, with that in mind, let's, let's dig into the question of what is a hard heart. A hard heart is a heart that is resistant to the grace of God. It's resistant to the grace of God. Now, before you think about all the hard-hearted people you know that need to hear this message, I want to challenge you to consider your own heart. Friends, over the past couple of months, um, George Lutz has been sponsoring me as I go through the 12 steps for codependence. I think all good pastors start out codependent. And um, I'm on step four, and after doing a little digging... I've come up with 47 things or people that I currently have resentments or anger towards. 47. That's terrible, okay, but it's honest. Guys, the last couple of years have been hard. We've seen relationships go up in smoke. We've seen friends act in ways that's like, what is that about? So I'm just saying, if I've got 47 different things or people that I currently I'm allowing God to soften my heart towards. Could it be possible that everybody in this room has at least one or two things, one or two areas that God wants to soften your heart? Amen? So let's talk about how hard hearts work so that we can begin to notice it in ourselves. Firstly, hard hearts use the law for self-justification. They use the law for self-justification. For these Pharisees, it was... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Which is not asking, God, what is your will? It's not asking, God, what is your best? How do I please you? It's really saying, can I justify what my heart wants to do anyway? Right? That's a terrible use of the law. So the Pharisees are seeking their own self-justification, not the will of God. And notice that Jesus makes it very clear at the end of the passage that God sees things as they truly are. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Let me say this. Although there are multiple interpretations around this, it certainly means no less than if you divorce your spouse with an eye to marry a specific person, Please call it what it is. That's adultery. Now, to answer Don's question, and I'm getting a little off my notes here for this. If, you know, if you were young and you got married to someone and you were immature, they were immature, y'all made some bad decisions, and eventually the marriage kind of, you know, dissolved and you got divorced, and 10 years later, you've had time to really work on yourself, get honest with God, mature in the Lord, which if you haven't done that, you don't need to get married again. You need to let God work on you for a while. But 
you know, it's 10 years later and God brings somebody into your life. I don't think this scripture is trying to say that that, if you get married to that person now, that's adultery. And I'll tell you why. So a few chapters before this passage, John the Baptist um, had gotten in trouble for um, going to Herod, who was a local king, if you will, and he basically said uh, Herod had married his brother's wife. His brother's wife had divorced his brother for the purpose of marrying Herod. And so John shows up and he's like, no, that's wrong. That is not lawful. And, uh, well, it gets John put in prison and eventually it gets John beheaded. By this point in the text, Jesus is very close to Herod's jurisdiction. And so notice it says the Pharisees came to test him. Well, what are the Pharisees doing? I think they're trying to get Jesus in the same trouble that John was by, by you know, basically speaking into this marriage. And, and the truth is, is I'm very confident that Jesus would agree with John, but Jesus still had more of a mission. To, it wasn't time to go to prison and be beheaded, right? He, he still had more things to do. So the point is, is that I think that's where this text is connected to if, if, you, if you look at, look at it on a scriptural level. So, but that being said, what if, what if you're in the room and you're like, man, it was me. Like, I had an eye for the other person and I divorced my wife so that I could marry my secretary. Well, here's the thing. God does forgive. Grace does cover. You need to repent. But, but you also need to understand that the grace of God really covers and you can really walk in forgiveness and divorce and uh, certainly divorce and certainly uh, adultery they're not the unpardonable sin are they serious? absolutely do they need to be taken seriously? absolutely but are they beyond the reach of God's grace? absolutely not so let's continue on Don did that did I answer the question? Awesome, fantastic. So guys, these Pharisees weren't using the law to seek God's will. They were using the law to justify their own sinful inclinations. Okay? And notice that the spouse in a contractual marriage with his wife will use the same self-justification. Listen to this. I can be cold to her because she was short with me earlier. I can say something mean to her because she said something mean to me earlier. Well, what's going on? That's just, that's the law of tit for tat. And that's basically using that law to self-justify your own behavior. And guys, the, the law of tit for tat provides self-justification, which ultimately leads to a hard heart. Also, another part of hard-heartedness is um, hard hearts often come from developing false mental narratives. They come from developing false mental narratives. Let me say this. I think it's always good to draw out themes that are long-ranging in terms of the Bible. Hard-heartedness is one of those central, long-ranging themes. So, to see this, let's look at one of the first times that someone is considered to have a hard heart in Scripture. When, when is the, one of the first times where somebody is declared to have a hard heart? Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh. Now, think about the case of Pharaoh. Um, the Israelites had greatly increased in number in Egypt. That was true. 
But then he began to project a false narrative, right? He had this idea that if, the, if another country comes and attacks us, the Israelites will join with that other country, fight against us, and then leave. Now notice there was truth and then there's a false narrative. The truth is they've increased and multiplied. The false narrative is they'll join with our enemies, right? And then notice that Pharaoh takes this narrative and he gives it to others, uh, the other Egyptian officials, so that they all begin to have hard hearts. And then in response to the hard heart, or excuse me, in response to the narrative, he comes up with a maniacal plan. In essence, we need to enslave the Israelites so that they're only focused on the task at hand and they're never focused on greater decision-making, freedom, leaving the country, what have you. Let me say this, how easy it is after a few hurts in a relationship to assume that this is how things with your spouse will always be. To think that, frankly, this is as good as it gets. What is that? It's a futuristic narrative that may not be true. But the more that your heart begins to dwell on that false narrative, guess what happens? Your heart begins to harden towards that false narrative, and it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Does that make sense? And friends, this actually misses the point of marriage. You could argue that there are four chapters in Scripture that are untainted by sin. The first two chapters and the last two chapters. And they're really important because... In these two chapters, you actually get to see God's will, his intended preferred will. In all the other chapters, you get to see his redemptive will. You get to see kind of him redeeming a thing that was broken. So when Jesus came, his message was repent for the kingdom of God has come near. In essence, I'm the king and I've come to restore not just individual lives, but the whole world as it was designed to be. Friends, the kingdom of God is about a whole lot more than just personal salvation. Amen? Like he is coming to restore the world by his kingdom. And guys, this is probably the most fundamental overarching theme in scripture. God restoring and renewing all creation by the means of the kingdom of God. So notice that when Jesus goes from the Mosaic law to God's original design, he begins to quote Genesis 1 and 2. He says, um, in the beginning, at the, crea at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so that they are no longer one, excuse me, no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Friends, marriage is intended to be a very deep spiritual friendship in which you help the other person become who God created them to be. So in a way, you become intimate allies in the work of sanctification. And this is important because surprise, surprise, you always marry a sinner, right? And shockingly, your spouse married a sinner too. I want you to look at your spouse and be like, dang, I married a sinner. That's how that works, right? <laughs> and so, guys, if you go into marriage thinking that the other person is there to meet all your needs emotionally, when his or her character flaws show up, you won't just be disappointed, you'll be devastated. But if you go into marriage believing that you are signing up for the mutual work of sanctifying 
each other or being a part of God's sanctifying grace in each other's lives to help them become more fully and radiantly an image bearer of God. Then when you see their character flaws show up, you actually start to live into your greater purpose as a spouse. And friends, this begins to reverse that hopeless mental narrative. Because you are actively seeking God's grace to personally grow into holiness and to help your spouse grow in holiness. But because that's happening, you can actually begin to look forward to the people you and your spouse are becoming in the future. Right? It, it becomes something to get excited about. And I would also like to say that this mutually sanctifying work is how we grow into the one flesh reality that God has declared upon our wedding vows, right? As we begin to work on ourselves before the Lord and let the Lord work in us, it actually builds intimacy, makes us excited about the people that we're becoming. But to go after these character flaws, go from character flaws to a deeper union, absolute, excuse me, three absolutely necessary pieces of covenantal love must be there. We need truth and love, real repentance, and real forgiveness. Now you may be thinking, Christopher, uh, I'm married, but I married an unbeliever. So does any of this really matter to me? Does anything, any of this really pertain to me? And I would say, I think you need to think about your marriage theologically. And I'm serious about this. If, if you got married before you became a Christian and you married an unbeliever, and, th and that's where you are, is that marriage going to be more difficult and in terms of kind of in relation to your faith? Yeah, it will be. But theologically speaking, God's grace is still at work in your marriage. God is still pouring out grace over your spouse. The truth is, God actually believes in your spouse, whether your spouse believes in God or not, right? So we can still partner with God's grace in our marriage. So whether you're married to a believer, married to an unbeliever, or if you're single like me, the things I'm about to say in, regarding, uh, in regards to speaking truth in love, real repentance, and real forgiveness will just be a blessing and a help to your relationships. So let's begin with truth in love. When we see a character flaw in the other, we actually have to speak the truth in love. Um, we can be tempted to play the coward, right? To just not mention it so we can keep the peace. How peaceful is keeping the peace? It is not, right? Because internally that character flaw is beginning to create distance between you and your spouse or you and your good friend and your oneness is actually eroding from the inside out. So you can't just not say something. The other way of handling that is when you see a character flaw in your spouse, you can be tempted to tell them the truth, but not in love. Which Tim Keller calls this, telling them the truth for your sake, not for theirs. Okay? And by the way, a lot of, this, uh, a lot of the information I'm giving you today kind of comes from um, things that Tim and Kathy Keller have said throughout the years, and particularly in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, so I highly recommend that. So to tell the truth in love regarding character flaws is to love the other person enough to call out the destructive ways in their lives, right? To care for them in that way. And then there's repentance. How many of y'all know that being sorry and repentant are not the same thing? 
right? Okay, they, they go together, okay? They, they're they're, they're um, complementary, but they're not the same thing. Uh, to be sorry means that you feel bad for what you've done. To be repentant means that you turn around and start to operate differently, okay? And let me say this. When your spouse confronts you on your character defect and you say, I'm sorry, but you're not repentant, that builds distrust in the marriage because they begin to know that you're not, your yes isn't your yes and your no is not your, you know, it's, that you're not a person of your word. So friends, when your spouse has the courage to confront you in love with truth, the most loving thing you can do for them is not just say, I'm sorry, but to do some real soul searching before God and to really begin to ask the question, why do I act this way? Why do, why do I treat this person this way? Saying I'm sorry takes about 30 seconds. Doing the necessary work to truly repent from the heart takes time and intentionality before God with our character flaws. But man, when your spouse begins to see you working, cooperating with the grace of God, letting God change you, even if you're not doing it perfectly, when your spouse begins to see you leaning into that, Man, what does that do for your heart? Like their heart begins to just warm up because you're trying, because you're taking them seriously. You're, you're hearing what they're saying. And then lastly, when you're the one that's been wronged, you actually have to forgive. Um, and let me say this. Any good relationship is a dance of learning to confront and forgive and learning to repent and vice versa. So we really all need to become good at all three. Amen? Okay? So, um, to paraphrase Steve Siemens, forgiveness means recognizing what has actually been done to you, bearing the pain, and releasing the other person from the debt he or she owes you. So friends, forgiveness is real work. It is not simply a thing of saying, my, or no big deal, no, it's not, no, it, it is a big deal, right? Um, so, forgiveness requires us to be honest with ourselves, and very often honest with the other person about what's been done to us. It requires uh, a willingness to absorb the pain ourselves, and rather than retaliating in that pain, it, it calls us to release that other person from the debt, meaning that I'm not going to bring it back up when it's convenient, Right? Why? And guys, hear me on this. This is a big deal. I want to forgive my spouse or my good friend because I want to be present to the person that I'm currently in relationship with. Unforgiveness locks you into the past. And you keep relating to that person based on something that happened five years ago rather than actually being able to love the person in front of you. And to, uh, you also want to forgive, let me say this, you also want to forgive because your spouse doesn't need another accuser. The accuser of the brethren is the devil. Don't be the devil in your marriage, right? Uh, your spouse needs a lover. Also, we forgive because we want to be forgiven, right? Like, I don't want things, man, good golly, who wants things from the past coming up at inopportune times? Like, Lord, forgive us that we might walk in it. So to have a soft heart in any relationship means that we are called to love like God loves 
And God's love is covenantal, not contractual. Friends, the truth is covenantal love is hard. Uh, It's vulnerable. It's sometimes really painful. But the gospel says that that vulnerability, that taking of the pain, is exactly how God is healing our world. By Genesis 15, Abraham had been following God for a long time. And he still didn't have the son that God promised him. And so he basically takes God to the mat and he says, how will I know that you're going to come through for me on on your word? That's essentially what he says. And so God says, okay, I want you to take a bunch of animals and I want you to cut them in half. And I want you to form this this aisle that you're going to, where half the carcass is over here, half the carcass over here, and this long row of animals. Now to us, it's a very odd looking scene, but it would have made perfect sense to Abraham. God is cutting a covenant with Abraham. And so, if you're familiar at all with ancient Near Eastern um, covenants, uh, kings would make covenants like this, and the lesser king would walk up and down the aisle of animals. And he would recite the terms of the covenant. Why? Because he's essentially saying, if I don't do what I've promised... May it be unto me as it is with these animals. And so, as you're reading the text, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern covenants, you are totally assuming that Abraham's about to walk up and down this aisle and about to, you know, as the lesser between him and God, going to recite the terms of the covenant, but in a stunning reversal, he falls asleep, and guess what? God begins to walk up and down the covenant aisle proclaiming the terms of the covenant. And he's essentially saying, Abraham, if I don't come through for you, if I don't keep my word, if this covenant gets broken, may it be unto me as it is with these animals. Friends, the incarnation of Jesus was because the covenant was broken. Not by God, but by us. So Jesus left heaven, took on flesh, and entered our world. And like a deeply loving spouse, he vulnerably told us the truth. He didn't tell us the truth for his sake. He told us the truth for our sake. He didn't play the coward, but he didn't condemn us. He told us the truth because he wanted to see us free from every character flaw that robs us of real relationship with one another, real relationship with God, and real relationship with ourselves. And friends, some who he confronted with love repented. Some who he confronted with love rejected him. And in the greatest act of love, he took it. He very vulnerably bore the pain and said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friends, the cross is essentially Jesus saying to the crazy and the evil of our world, It ends here. Enough's enough. I will not retaliate in kind. You gave me your worst, and I will give you self-sacrificial, covenantal love in return. Friends, the cross is how God is healing our world. And you taking up your cross in your marriage is how God will bring healing into your marriage. Are you willing to say, Lord... If you can love me like that, by your grace, I'll love another person like that. 
Are you willing to say, Lord, if, if you bore the pain that I inflicted on you, I'll emotionally risk confronting someone in love. Maybe they'll receive it, maybe they won't. But I'll choose to love them by speaking the truth in love. Or maybe you're aware that you've been on the inflicting side of the issue. You've been hurting someone. Friends, it's, it's time to move from being sorry to being repentant. It's time to slow down and actually ask the hard questions. Why am I so angry? Why am I so critical? Why do I shade the truth for my own benefit? Or, or why am I dishonest? Or why am I uh, constantly overcommitting myself to things to the point that I can't really be emotionally available to my spouse? Or my yes isn't my yes and my no is not my no. Or some people in this room, you're single like me. And frankly, you've been hurt in the midst of all the crazy. And as singles, it's really easy to just go, you know, it's not that big a deal. Uh, you know, bless the Lord, and I'm just going to go over here and do this. But guys, that's not how God is healing our world. He's healing our world in truth. And he wants to bless those relationships and he, he wants us to, to, to take the vulnerable hard stance of actually confronting the person that we're in relationship with. Maybe for some of you, it's like this is not really about a spouse, but in the midst of the pandemic, th there are people that you've wronged, people that you've um, either said the wrong things to or said nothing at all to, and it's time to just be real and to take up the ball of reconciliation and recognizing it's in your court. Friends, the point is, if there are 47 different things, and Julian, you can come on up. If there are 47 seven different areas in my heart that God needs to soften, there is something in your heart <laughs> that God probably needs to soften too. And so I just want us to be honest with God in prayer and and as the old ba Baptist preachers used to say, do business with God. Kind of really get honest with God. I want you to stand. And um, we're just going to take a couple of minutes. And I just want you just to, to really get quiet before God and ask Him, Lord, what is that place in my life that needs to change? Lord Jesus, we just put our hearts before you and we want to be soft hearted we want to be covenantal people um, we want to be lovers not accusers and so Jesus what is that place in each of our hearts that needs that needs attention
Jesus, we ask you, Lord, for that grace to let you speak into our lives and to let you mold our hearts that we would be your people all the way through and love you all the way through and love those around us in ways that reflect your kingdom. Lord, we love you and we thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.